mental aspects of depression. Before we get started, let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we have been blessed so much in these few days so far at camp, and we give thanks for your presence with us and for the love that we can share one with another, the fellowship that we have, and for our Savior Christ Jesus and for the Holy Spirit who provides guidance for each of your children. For these we are thankful. And as we have come together again in this afternoon hour for a very special purpose to deal with a very distinctive problem, Lord, we would pray that you would enlighten our hearts, open our minds, that we may be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for each one who has come and would pray, Lord, that in their unique situation, you would be their guide and their comfort, and you would provide direction in a way that none of us can. We thank you for the sisters who have agreed to be a part of this forum and make presentations, and for the sister who will share her own experiences, Lord, we pray that you would give her strength to do so, and may we all learn from what we will hear. In Jesus' name we ask it all. Amen. The format that we want to follow is Sister Elizabeth will start us out with some introductory and definition types of materials. We will then follow that by the sharing of an experience from Sister Martha, and then um, we'll proceed from there to uh, look at uh, some other distinctive aspects of dealing with depression, family members or other friends and loved ones who are dealing with the issue. And um, I'd obviously like to have time for questions and answer uh, at the end of our time together. So if you come across things that you'd like to ask about, if you would just kind of hold off on them until we get through and we promise we won't use all of the time for presentation. So without anything further, I'll give it to Sister Elizabeth. Okay, so we're talking about depression, and I think all of us can relate to it because we all go through periods of feeling low or down at some point or other. It is a universal experience, just being part of the human condition. So if you think of it as a continuum, it can begin with feeling down or sad a lot of the times, But if left unattended, the feelings can become more intense, lasting for longer periods of time, and even prevent the person from living a normal life. So it can go from something uh, that you just feel down someday, not yourself, and you just can't shake it, to the point where you may need to be hospitalized with a more severe depression. Now, there is a difference between depression and grief. We all go through uh, grief through losses of various kinds, and grief you get over, but grief can also be a trigger for depression if it persists, uh, depending on the duration and whether it interferes with your daily activities. According to the Mayo Clinic, in the USA, one out of four will experience at least one depressive episode during their life. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, 9.5 of the U.S. population, or 18.8 million adults, suffer from depressive illness. 
and each stage of life has its own potential cause of depression, all the way from infants to the elderly. You can see it in infants where there's an interference in the bonding with the, with the mother, and all the way through the different stages of childhood, adolescence, young adults, depending upon what stresses or challenges they face, to the elderly who have to cope with uh, different losses, illnesses, situational changes, and so on. And the studies show, basically, that those who come through these stages unscathed seem to do so because of a healthy mental attitude. So that seems to be the key, how you respond to these stresses and crises and different situations in your life. The good news is that it can be treated successfully. Even though a lot of people suffer from it, it can be treated very successfully. And if you stop and think of, uh, there's plenty of experiences in the Bible. So it's not something that we need to feel ashamed of because even the men of God, the prophets, the uh, people that we look up to have gone through periods of depression. Uh, take, for example, David. I'm thinking of the time when his child was dying. He didn't eat, he didn't sleep. He was very depressed. But once that situation changed, he got on with his life. Elijah, a mountaintop experience, showing the power of God. And the next minute, out of fear and exhaustion, he is totally depressed and asking God to take his life. So we can go through periods like that. We're not any different either. So I'm just going to take uh, a few minutes and go through what the American Psychiatric Association identifies as six major types of depression, just to give you an idea of the kinds of uh, depressive illnesses that there are. So the first one would be a major depressive disorder. That would be the most serious one. In addition to low mood and lack of pleasure, a wide variety of other symptoms such occur, such as the inability to concentrate or make decisions, intense feelings of guilt and self-condemnation, major changes in sleep patterns, sleeping a lot or not sleeping hardly at all, uh, patterns in appetite, eating a lot or not eating, a lot of weight gain or a lot of weight loss, and clear signs of either revved up agitation or slowed functioning. Uh, repetitive thoughts of suicide and extreme fatigue. So this is a kind of uh, depression that you can't even get out of bed. It really slows you down, immobilizes you, paralyzes you to some extent in, in uh, your activities. The second one is a chronic low-level depression, and that accounts for about one-third of all depressions, which are considered chronic. They're less frequently, they less frequently include the prominent physical symptoms, including appetite and weight, sleep and agitation, and the person is not as despondent as with the major depressive disorder, and it often begins early in life. If a person starts to be uh, 
depressed early in life, there's chances that it will uh, reoccur unless it's attended to properly. The person may not identify as being depressed, but may seem pessimistic, cynical, or grouchy a good deal of the time. I know we can all identify that part. <laughs> we tend to languish, they tend to languish, or have a lack of vigor, or just a basic joy of living. So you know people who are just a bear to be around a lot of the time, chances are they're suffering from depression. And the third one then is adjustment disorder with depressed mood. There are reactions to one or more difficult issues such as marital problems, financial setbacks, conflicts with uh, co-workers, losses, natural disasters, or it could be accumulation of different things that pile up on the person. Reactions include decreased ability to work or participate effectively with others along with the symptoms such as low mood, crying spells, feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness. And the next one is bipolar disorder. You might have also heard of it as manic depressive. The moods fluctuate between extreme highs and lows. During the manic or high episodes, judgment is impaired. Sometimes they make foolish decisions, go to extremes, or think they have super special talents or abilities. And their out of control behavior may cause them to be hospitalized. Most people with bipolar disorder also cycle into episodes of mild to severe dep depression. They go from feeling great to gruesome, and the contrast is particularly painful. Risk of suicide is greater than with any other types of depression. Although they are generally chronic, bipolar disorder can be successfully managed. And um, I remember with working with a lady like this, it, it, when she was in the manic stage, she would be, have so much energy and be creative, and she'd just have all kinds of ideas of what she could do, how she could start a business, what she was going to do, and it, that was just boundless energy, and she'd go all night you know, planning what she was going to do. And then when she would get depressed, she would get so depressed that all that work that she did, she tore it all up. And there was no reasoning with her when she was in the, uh, in the depressive state because the, her judgment was not good. So uh, I was dealing with her at a time when she had a child with her, so there would be very difficult times when we would have to just take the action that was necessary to make sure that the child was safe. And number five, seasonal affect disorder. People regularly experience depression during the fall and winter season, and it usually happens in places where there's reduced amount of sunlight, which may trigger for vulnerable in individuals who live in higher latitudes where light fluctuations are extreme, a lot more, uh, less sunlight and more hours of darkness. Symptoms include increased appetite, carbohydrate cravings, carbohydrate cravings, pardon me, increased sleep, irritability, and a sense of heaviness in the arms and legs. And they, somebody say, what does a bear do in the winter? <laughs> Can get ready for winter. It sounds pretty similar. And the last one was six, uh, depression related to hormones. 
premenstrual dysphoric disorder and postpartum depression comprise those two basically. PDD is a more extreme form of a widely known premenstrual syndrome, PMS. Research hasn't yet clarified causes other than hormonal. And as you can see, it's pretty hard to be clear on the research exactly what else it's related to. Symptoms are generally anger, anxiety, fatigue, food cravings, irritability, sadness, tearfulness, withdrawal, guilt, and self-blame. Postpartum depression, it's widely thought to be related to hormonal fluctuations, but no one knows for sure why some women are, are, are affected and others are not. This depression occurs within days or weeks after giving birth. The symptoms appear quite similar to those of the major depressive disorder. So you can see how it would cause a deep concern and uh, you really wonder what's happening to you. So let's just look at then, how do we detect depression? What are some of the symptoms that we can recognize, maybe in ourselves or maybe in someone that we work with or that we're associated with in our families or whatever? Um, I can just finish the symptoms and then she can go on to that. Okay, so we're talking basically then about the physical and mental symptoms of depression. There would be changes in sleep patterns, changes in eating habits and weights, as we've already alluded to in, in uh, the descriptions. Apathy, lethargy, or the blahs, loss of energy and interest, loss of interest or pleasures of life, neglect of personal responsibility or personal care, many physical ailments that don't respond to treatment, and decreased concentration, attention, and memory. So if there's something quite drastic that's out of the normal for the person that you can see is, is uncharacteristic, then it gives you a clue that something is going on. If a person is usually neat and well-groomed and they come looking slovenly and, you know, like very indifferent about what's happening, it gives you a pretty good clue. Emotionally, extreme mood changes, loss of affection, persistent sadness, Again, irritability and hostility, first anger directed outward and then inward, which then perhaps would cause anxiety, worry, fear, feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, or being overwhelmed, and a continuous negative thinking. It's just hard to think about anything positive or get yourself back on a positive track. You just seem to be drawn to the negative, which then sometimes in extremes leads to thoughts of death or suicide. Thank you, Elizabeth. We would like to now turn to Sister Martha's experience and she'll tell us what she dealt with and um, we'll let her tell her own story. Actually, this um, <clears throat> it's not as easy as I thought it would be to share this with you. We'll be praying for you, Martha. Yes, Thanks. We'll I always thought that I was a very positive person. And if you would have told me even five years ago that I would be sitting on a panel in depression, I would have laughed at you. I, I didn't think I would ever come to the point where I could be depressed. But I know now, after the fact, that I did have two episodes of depression in my life in the past few years. And even though I wasn't clinically diagnosed with depression, I realize now that that's exactly what it was. 
Um, the reason why I want to share this with you is because now that I've gone through it, I've heard of so many other women that have dealt with postpartum depression and nobody wants to talk about it because you think that there's something wrong with you. You're a bad mom, you just can't cope or, or whatever. So I just want to share two experiences that I had. The first one was after I had a miscarriage a few years ago. And at first I thought it was just because of the hormone thing. It took a while for it to calm down. And, but after a few months when I was still feeling really low and, and I would cry all the time, couldn't go to church because I would see all the women that were pregnant, I'd see all the babies. I would avoid the baby room because there were babies there. I realized that something must have been wrong, so I asked my brother-in-law, Joe Baca, who's a, a doctor, I asked him, how long does it take for the hormones to settle back down? And he said, with a miscarriage, just a few days. I thought, oh, great. Can't blame it on hormones, so what's going on? And then I realized that it really was a depression. Um, people were saying things to me like, it's been three months, it's been six months. You should be over it. God will give you a baby someday. And those kinds of things just hurt so bad because we're not promised that. And that would just pull me down even more, thinking that, that maybe God chose that I would never have a child. And that was a depressing thing for me. And it was about a year after it happened that I remember specifically standing in church one day and someone said something to me and I laughed. And I thought, oh, did you hear that? I laughed for the first time in a year. And it was a sad thing to think that I had gone for a whole year sucked in this depression that I couldn't get out of. And I, I couldn't. I tried. You know, people would tell me, think about other things. And you just, you couldn't, I couldn't do it. The second time that I dealt with depression was after Timothy was born, my second child. Um, about three weeks after he was born, we had, in Canada, we have public nurses that will call you or come to your house and check up on you to make sure everything's okay with you and the baby. And she came and asked me how things were going, and she started asking me questions, you know, do you, are you doing okay? Um, are you crying a lot? Are you sleeping a lot? Are you okay with the baby? Obviously asking me if I'm depressed, but not saying it. And I told her, absolutely not. I am so fine. This is my second miracle baby. How could I ever be depressed? I don't think it's going to happen. If it hasn't happened in three weeks, it's not going to happen. And she said, it can happen up to six months after your baby's born. It can hit. And I thought, it's not going to happen to me. I'm right where I always wanted to be in my life. And about two and a half or three months after that, I realized that something was wrong because I started having panic attacks. I cried all the time. I didn't want to leave the house. I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't even talk to my friends. I couldn't look anybody in the eye. I remember specifically one time being at a wedding reception, and I'm normally a very social person, and I love things like that because you get to visit with so many people, and I was glued to my chair. I kept looking at the clock and saying, Fred, isn't it time to go? Can't we just leave? I just couldn't face anybody, and at one point, I even went into the restroom and I st stood in a stall for about 30 minutes just hyperventilating in there thinking, I can't go back out. I can't face people. And I couldn't understand why because I loved doing things like that. And I knew that there were all those people out there that I wanted to talk to and I couldn't face anybody. And then a few weeks after that even, um, I, I just couldn't think straight. 
one Sunday morning, my sister-in-law asked me if she could take Timothy from me and I could go upstairs and listen to the sermon. And I, I said, I don't know. I don't know if you can take him or not. And she said, well, did you feed him? Yes. So then it's okay if I take him. I said, I, I don't know. Is it okay? And she said, it's fine, Martha. You can give him to me. And I said, I better ask Fred. And she said, it's okay. I, let me just take him. So she took him from me. And I just went back into that bathroom stall. <laughs> and I sobbed and sobbed because I couldn't even make a rational decision. Can my sister-in-law hold my baby? It was, it was a time where I felt like I was completely out of control. I was a stranger in my own body. I was, I was doing all of these things and wasn't even aware of what was going on around me. And one, one time, um, it got to be pretty bad. Timothy was also very colicky, so that didn't help it. Um, one afternoon, things had gotten so bad that I, I called Fred first, but unfortunately he was in a meeting, so he couldn't talk to me. And so I called my sister, and I said, you have to pray for me right now because I'm going to hurt him. And I was so afraid that I was going to do something to Timothy. And she told me that I wouldn't because I had the Holy Spirit in me and he would not allow me to do that to my child. But I was scared because I felt like if somebody wasn't there with me, I could have really done damage to him. And I just, around that same time, there was a woman in Texas who had cut the limbs off of her child and let him bleed to death. And I knew I wasn't at that point. But I was scared that I would do something to really damage him. And I, it was a really hard time at that point. Liz prayed with me, and it helped me get to the point where I could at least, thank you, I could realize that it wasn't me that day, particularly. Um, I finally got up the nerve to ask one of my friends for help. And I, I asked for some prayers, and she told me that I needed to stop complaining because this is where I had prayed that I would be in my life. And that now that, I've ha that I have this baby that I prayed for, I should be happy. And I couldn't be. It wasn't because of Timothy. I loved him with all my heart, but there was just something hanging over me that I could not shake. And when she told me that, that I needed to be happy and stop complaining, Unfortunately, it was the wrong thing to say because I, I stopped asking for help. But I did tell Fred one day after it got really bad, I told him that to me, I seemed fine. I seemed rational at, at all times. But if he ever saw me saying or doing something that was not normal, he had to get me help because to me, everything was the way it always was. And I'm really thankful that he never had to do that. Um, but it could have gotten to that point because I had no clue when I was in my right mind or when I wasn't. It took about six months for the major depression to lift, but I still get short reoccurrences of it. Even now, just out of the blue, it'll hit me. I'll have a panic attack or um, I won't want to leave the house. I won't want to talk to anybody. The phone will ring and I just stare at it thinking I can't answer it. And there's no reason for it. There's no explanation. It just happens. And during this whole time, I was thinking, I can't talk to anybody about it because then everybody's going to know that I'm a bad mom. I mean, I only have two kids. Can't I handle that? Can't I cope with two kids? I see all these other mothers that are doing just fine, and they have more than two. 
Um, but actually, someone told me one time when I was standing in the basement at church crying, she said, but you've never had two kids before. It's okay. You're going through an adjustment period. And I thought, that's true. It's all right to, to go through this stress. But um, I was worried that I was a bad mom. I was worried that I wasn't close enough to God. I didn't have time to read my Bible. I didn't have time to pray. I couldn't think to pray. I, I could only think to survive. And I was starting to feel like maybe that was my problem. Maybe I wasn't close enough to the Lord. I was, I was afraid that I would never be in control again, that I would always live in this turmoil, not knowing what to do with my kids or with Fred. Sometimes I would call him and say, we're just having scrambled eggs for supper because I can't do anything else. And he said, that's fine. He likes scrambled eggs, so it was good. But, but it was really hard to even do the daily necessary things. I was worried that everybody was judging me and my inability to cope as a mother. Um, I was afraid that people wouldn't understand, the people that didn't understand would think that I didn't have it all together and that, that I just wasn't a coping person. Um, I know that you're going to talk about this more, Dave, but since I have the chance, <laughs> I just want to tell you some of the things that that helped me and didn't help me when I was going through this time. And I was talking with some other friends that I know have also gone through a depression. And so I just made a, a little list of things that really helped me when I was going through this. First of all, having someone to talk to that went through the same thing. And every situation is different, and I, I know that. But just to know that somebody else has gone through a postpartum depression or has had a miscarriage or has lost a loved one, and even though it is grief that they go through first, there's also some depression that can follow that. Just having somebody who can understand your situation is so vital to this. Having Fred tell me that I would make it and that he was behind me no matter what, that gave me some support, that gave me a hope that I wasn't doing this all by myself. Knowing that other people cared about my depression and they didn't downplay it even if they didn't understand it. Um, people allowed me to talk about it, even though they heard the story so many times before. And um, I just want to thank all of you who listened to me after I had my miscarriage that I told the same story to over and over and over again. Sometimes I just had to do that to get it out, and that really helped me. Having a distraction, getting away from the triggers of the depression. I didn't go to baby showers. I stayed away from colicky babies. Some people stay away from married couples or they stay away from funerals, whatever the trigger is that, that um, puts them back into their depression. Another positive thing was doing things for other people. If I can do something for somebody else, um, that, that took the, the uh, pressure off of me. I know a few months after my baby was born, there was another baby born in Kitchener, um, and he was colicky as well, would cry all the time, and I could see the mom was just at her rope's end, and uh, one time someone had both of my kids, so I just asked her if I could take her baby, and she just stood there and said, why? I said, because you need it, and I need to do it for you. And being able to do something like that to help somebody else who is going through the same thing is really beneficial. Um, asking Other people asking how they could pray specifically for me, and the times that I couldn't even think of how to tell them to pray for me, they would suggest ways that they could pray, that I would just be able to deal with Timothy's colic or that I would be able to, um, to function well enough during the day that, that I could manage the daily routines, that I would get some sleep at night, which was a big, fa big factor. 
um, knowing that friends were with me in the long haul and not just for the beginning of the crisis or just when another flare-up of de depression would come. The people that cared about all the areas of my life, not just the fact that I was struggling with postpartum depression. Um, another big one was other people sharing their vulnerabilities in their areas of depression. People being honest and saying, I went through the same thing. Feeling valued as a person and not just a victim of depression. Knowing that I was still worth something, somewhere, to somebody. What didn't help was saying that circumstances would change, that I would have a baby someday, or that you will see a loved one someday, or that you will get married someday. Those kinds of things are, we think that they're nice to say to people, but it can really hurt at times too. Another thing that didn't help was people showing shock at the things I would say, or the things that I would do. I didn't need that. I needed somebody to say, I'm here, instead of, oh, what, you felt like you were gonna throw your baby on the floor? You know, I. I didn't need that. I was already feeling enough guilt myself. Um, what didn't help was people being pushy about me getting over the depression already, especially after, after the miscarriage. I already mentioned that. You know, it's already been six months. Or even after, after Stephen was born, people would share with me situations that they had with having a miscarriage. And I would cry with them. And they'd say, how can you be so affected? You already have another child. I said, but I remember it. I was there. I, I can cry with you now. It didn't help for people to act as if nothing was wrong, knowing that there definitely was a problem and, and people would just skirt around the issue or, and not talk about it. That was not helpful. What you can do for people who are going through a depression or you think they are, be patient with them. Help them ride it out. Pray for them. Love them unconditionally. Get them distracted in positive ways. Show concern, but don't push them. Avoid saying, I know how you feel when each situation is different. Participate in common activities so that you can participate in a safe environment, especially for me when I was having those panic attacks and I couldn't be in public. I still needed to know that people cared about me, but I couldn't go in public to talk with people. And I, it really helped to have people come to my house one-on-one -on -one and sit and talk with me because then I felt like there was still interaction but I wasn't being forced to be social. Um, avoid accusing or judging. Don't show shock at what we say. Get us help if we're not able to do it for ourselves. And stick with us through the difficult stages. Keep praying with us and for us so that we can get through it. Thanks. Thank you, Martha, very much for sharing with us your very personal experiences and uh, um, the courage that it takes to do that in a public forum. We appreciate that, and I'm sure that that would be valued by others who also have had that or similar kinds of issues. The next section, and I want to move through this quickly so we can get to a uh, question, is diagnosing depression. One of the things that we do know about this field is it's very difficult even for experienced professionals to do it. And that's particularly because depression occurs in the context of normal life. Everybody gets down or a little sad now and then. And um, um, it's very hard to distinguish from the normal and natural twists that life throws our way. And so when somebody may be feeling down, 
It may be a very temporary thing. It may be caused by a very specific event, or it may be something longer term, like Martha. I mean, if she knew from the start where she would end up, it would have been shocking to her at, at the outset. And it's very difficult for even professionals to recognize what is going on. It's difficult for many depressed people to give an account of their own illness while they're experiencing it. And so often the reports and Martha's words come after the fact, I'm assuming. Most of it wouldn't have come during the time that you were experiencing it. I wasn't aware of what You weren't even aware of what was going on during that time, right? Three basic criteria uh, that are often used uh, is symptoms involving um, changes in mood, in liveliness, uh, a person's physical and um, mental activities. There are changes in self-regard, like self-esteem, self-confidence. It runs an episodic course. That means there are good times and there are bad times. And we're not talking about the bipolar here, but there are times when things are fairly normal when it comes to making supper, for example, although it may be very simple. Um, and then it also tends to run in families. And there's been a lot of research on this, but generally in a history of a person, when you want to get information on their background, you often, it's often asked whether there's a history of depression within the family. Of course, you never know whether that's genetic, biological, hormonal, a combination of those things, or environment. We know, for example, that children that have depression are much more likely to have depressed parents than children uh, who are depressed and have normal parents. Where to get help is the next topic. For one thing, um, note that diagnosis is the first step. And typically, a trained professional who is skilled that asking the right kinds of questions and letting people tell their story is what's preferred. If a person had a cancer, let's say, we don't blame the person who has that. We might try to find out if there's a history of that in the family and we might uh, get a number of different um, uh, suggest regimens for treatment but we typically would not blame the person for it. We would not think that they caused it, except in those rare instances where one might be dealing with lung cancer and smoking. But even at that point, you know, what do you do? Do you point out the obvious to people? And what does that help at that point? The idea here is that this individual did not cause this, and he or she should not be expected to fix it on their own. In choosing a professional for this service, you want somebody who respects your lifestyle. That's my polite way of saying you want somebody who understands where you are coming from, from a faith standpoint. They don't necessarily have to be a member of your church and a physician. They don't necessarily have to be even a Christian individual. If they are willing to take you where you are at and where you're coming from, relates well to you, treats you as a person and somebody who is worth spending uh, time with. These individuals are typically medical doctors, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, social worker, nurse, clergy. The notion is that you've got somebody who has some degree of training and is at least initially uh, willing to let the person know that I think that 
I can refer you on to somebody else who can deal with this problem because that's their specialty. You also want somebody who um, is a, a professional who not only deals with the patient but also works with the family and you bring others into this loop because it's not just affecting Martha. It's affecting Fred. It's affecting children. It's affecting the family. And at some level, it's affecting people in the church too. Types of therapy. Typically what is done is various pharmacological treatments, various medications. Depression can be treated except in the most extreme forms of psychosis, and we didn't really even get into that, um, it can be controlled. And there are people walking around in the world around us, lots of them, in significant positions in life who are on medication, and it's being controlled through medication. Um, Another aspect of this that comes at it from a different standpoint is the so-called talking therapies, counseling. Uh, with a psychiatrist, a psychologist, uh, a social work like Elizabeth uh, uh, was involved. Um, The idea here is that the person gets to discuss all of the things that they're feeling and the difficulties that they're experiencing and uh, gets to get that out in the open, share it with somebody, and try to get some understanding of what is taking place. What we want is a doctor who would look at the depressed person as a person and not just a set of symptoms, not just, you know, you've got these characteristics of depression. And you don't want a middleman for some large pharmaceutical firm who is simply pushing drugs. This is what you need, gives you a prescription and out you go, and you've still got to go back home to the same situation. You've got to deal with the same situation at work or whatever it might be. You want somebody who will not just simply push drugs and and not deal with the whole person. If a doctor is unwilling to spend any time with you, they're probably not very interested and you probably should look elsewhere for a professional. So medication should be part of the overall treatment but not used exclusively. A combination of these two, research has shown that medication along with the talking therapies can effectively treat depression in its various forms better than either medication alone or better than just counseling alone. How can I deal with a depressed loved one? Depression affects others and not just the person who has it. Depression can drain the confidence that family, loved ones, and co-workers have in the individual. The loss of trust is bad enough, but most people suffer from depression without even knowing it. And it's the rare individual who comes to the conclusion that he or she, on their own, is suffering from depression. A spouse may not be able to recognize it, and the changes may be so gradual that they don't see it. And uh, most depressions, most depressions are never diagnosed and thus never really treated. Close relationships are difficult to sustain, and reassurances from their loved ones that they're worthy, that they're loved, that usually falls on deaf ears when a person is depressed. They typically assume the worst regarding what others think of them, but they won't come right out and say what they think because they're too polite to say that. And depression warps reasoning. 
What you want to do is talk to each other about what you or your relative once done while ill. Martha said, Fred, if you ever see me or hear me doing something that is bizarre, and I'm not going to know it, tell me, get me help, do something that will deal with the situation. And it's much easier to do that when the person is feeling well and can articulate their needs, and those can be accomplished. So have a plan in advance. Now, obviously, the, the task is not for all of us to go out of here and develop a plan in case we get depressed. But the point is, if one has something coming on where things do appear to be happening and we can't figure out what's going on, let's decide in advance how we're going to deal with this because she will not be, I will not be in the condition to know or to accept the fact that I need help in that situation or I won't be able to reason it through. Figure on things getting better and plan for success. Success rates suggest that that's a realistic thing to do and you want to hang in there for your family member. Um, you want to um, understand that uh, the real person that you love will be back. And if you say that things will get better, do you think they'll believe you? Well, typically they won't. And they may even try to dissuade you in your thoughts about that. There's nothing like dealing with depression because people typically don't appreciate the help that people try to give them. And you heard the well-meaning examples that not only fell on deaf ears, but it made things even worse for her. And that is unfortunate. Reiterate your confidence that your loved one will get better, that you're not just trying to make them feel better. Explain that you understand why he or she can't believe you. Depression puts a negative outlook on things, and knowing that, that this is treatable, should give some consolation. Learn all you can about the disease. Research is another word for being prepared. Learn about the different types of depression, their characteristics, the treatments available. Be armed with an understanding of what you're dealing with. That's a very powerful tool for conversing with various medical and counseling professionals. Be a resource advocate for your loved one rather than a sad-eyed relative. Search the Internet. That's a great way to start gathering information. And also learn about your own feelings and reaction to the troubled experience and the relationship that you have with them. Have realistic expectations about what you can do about the depression. You or I cannot solve every problem. We don't have to have the answer or the solution to every difficulty our loved one solution, uh, a loved one experiences. We just need to pay attention, do more listening, show more interest, and be willing to intercede for them at the times that they need it. So have realistic expectations. Give them unqualified support. You give it, but most times it will not be appreciated and valued. And that's where friends, family, churches, it's really hard to hang in there because when people don't appreciate help, we feel hurt about that. But let them know that you're there for them and uh, that you're there for them when they want help. Learn to tolerate the negative feelings. Ask help for yourself. Ask to go along to a treatment session. Or even people have even gotten counseling independently. A husband who says, I have a difficult time dealing with this with my wife. How do I deal with this? What can I do? How can I get my own needs uh, satisfied and under control? Keep your routine despite feelings of guilt and fear. Don't drop out of all of your usual activities or cut yourself off from your social network. You're going to need these to help you deal with your own feelings. And express those feelings. 
with a depressed person helps to build up it helps to prevent the buildup of of resentment. So empathize rather than try to give solutions. And I have more to say on that in a little bit. Don't come on too strong. Don't attack. Don't blame. Just simply express how you feel and what the person is experiencing. And don't take it personally. Their symptoms and their reactions are to the illness. They reject help more than healthy people. Rejection is not of you, but it's caused by the depression. It's not her fault. It's not something she's doing to you. And self-pity does not make things better, and, and so on. And um, another one here is to ask for help. Admit that I'm not sure what I'm dealing with here. Uh, lean on others. Talk to a close friend. Get some counseling. Go to talk to a minister or an elder, someone who will understand and help you do a better job of caring for your loved one and perhaps even give you an occasional break. Work as a team, husband, wife, friends together, uh, whatever the situation, parent and child. The enemy is the depression, not the individual. It's not me against her. It's not her against me. It is us against this illness. One usually is the giver, The other person is typically the support in normal life. And oftentimes what happens is that those roles reverse. You know, one might say this, for example, you know in our relationship I'm usually the one helping you out of jams, but I have a real problem and I was wondering if you could help me with it. Loved ones can help in these situations, even when they are depressed. So sometimes even asking the um, depressed individual to help them with a problem can be helpful because they feel useful or needed, and that can make people feel better. Be proactive. Look ahead. Plan to the degree that you can for things that um, can be dealt with in advance. I found some very interesting information also in dealing with depression in women, and, I, and we're going to also, men, do the same for you. Shift thinking from solving problems to understanding feelings. A, a very core milestone that women don't want solutions to their problems. They want to be understood, first of all. I have to still learn that, because I'm ready for solutions. Rational, think it through, and provide a solution. Snap out of it, get a grip on yourself, you can have other children, you'll be united in heaven someday. We've got all of these solutions, and nobody's saying, how do you really feel? What's it like to be in your shoes? Ask about her depressive experiences. What are you experiencing? How do you feel? This is just not nosy curiosity. It shouldn't be perceived that way, nor should you go into it that way, but with a genuine interest in knowing about those experiences and and sympathize with the pain. Try to feel what it's like to be in her situation. What must it be like to feel like you could take this child and cause them harm? You saw the reaction here. What is that like? Have you ever thought about that? It takes a lot more than just saying, snap out of it. Fourth, it's oftentimes helpful to tell about a time that you felt down, an experience that you may have had, that indicates that you can identify with the feelings because you've been there, maybe not with postpartum depression, but with some other type of feeling down whatever that was. 
The thing you need to be careful there is not to shift attention from the individual that you're talking to and focusing then on your own problem and then that's the focus of attention. You simply want it to be a way to make a connection. And don't offer advice or suggestions right away. Develop the relationship, a level of understanding. And I think Martha made that very clear in those few people who really tried to develop that relationship and understand where she was coming from, what she was feeling, did not condemn her or tell her to get a grip on herself, but just simply they were there for her. Dealing with a depressed man. Don't expect him to open up. How many men open up when things are normal? <laughs> Why should it be now when he's got, the, you know, when he's not well? When he's got this depressive illness? So don't expect him all of a sudden to start telling you how he feels. He's never done that before. Or it may be very difficult for him to put into words what he's feeling. That's hard to do for many of us. Be sensitive to his male ego. And I kind of cringe at this, but there's probably some truth to that. You know, the scripture talks about males, the father in the home being the priest of the home. And, you know, it's God and Christ and Christ the head of the church. And then the husband, the head of the family and, and in the relationship with the wife. And, you know, there are some things there that we need to be sensitive to, to not just tear him down or to in some way... Uh, make it difficult for the male to retain uh, some sense of that relationship there. And it's an ego issue in the positive sense as opposed to something dealing with pride. Oftentimes offering choices to a male about what he's feeling is helpful. How do you, do you feel uh, angry? Uh, do you feel uh, sad? Uh, do you feel like the time you felt when your mother had died? You know, and you give the male some options, and then he can maybe pick from one of those uh, if you want to help understand what he's feeling. Also, share your own experiences, very similar for the women. The idea is to let the person know that you understand where they're coming from. And now we get into the solution. Men like to have solutions to problems. Women want to be understood. Men don't really care if they're understood. They just want to have the problem solved. So try to engage in some active problem solving and goal setting. What can we do to solve this issue? How can we go about handling this? And uh, coming up with some ways to do that uh, would be a move in the right direction. I want to talk about the, some spiritual dimensions of uh, depression. Is depression a spiritual problem? Is it a sin? Well, I would say that depression is a spiritual problem to the extent that having the flu is a spiritual problem to the extent that having cancer is a spiritual problem to the extent that having just about any other illness is a spiritual problem. Obviously, there are spiritual implications, but the spiritual condition may not necessarily be the cause of what is taking place here. Martha had some very definite experiences that contributed to what she was feeling, and it was very much independent of the kinds of things that she knew from a child growing up what the Scripture said on a variety of these things. It's probably more related to how a person deals with things in life and reactions to stress and the responsibilities and so on that we differ in in terms of our ability to deal with those for better, for worse, but it's not an issue that we have any control over. 
Some of it may be learned in our early home life, some may be genetic, some is hormonal, that is not known. Um, another issue, uh, so I would say no, it is not a sin, there are spiritual implications, but because you're depressed doesn't mean that you are a bad Christian and uh, should be judged as such. We heard about the irrational thinking and not being able to uh, sort through issues properly. Um, uh, we, we can't hold a person responsible at those times because they don't know what they are doing or how rational or irrational something is. Um, self-appraisal, this line between accurate self-appraisal and self-depreciation. We're very good in church about self-depreciating one another. By that I mean we all recognize that in our relationship with the Lord, we are as nothing. I think we have to be really very careful about putting ourselves down because, I mean, how much of that over a period of a lifetime can you take? And what about the child who hears nothing but negative experiences or negative comments about himself? And I distinctly remember a conversation with a young boy who told me that he was a no-good kid. And I asked this, what do you mean? And he proceeded to tell me and to prove it. And I'm thinking, you know, what that four-year-old, what kind of a trajectory was he on in life by being told that early on? Self-appraisal. We have to remember that, you know, we were created in the image of God. We were created a little bit lower than the angels. We all have talents and gifts that God can use, and we should not self-depreciate, nor should we heap that sort of, I'll call it criticism, on others. Because we never know how they're going to take it. Some may be strong enough to take it, others not. Can church involvement make a person feel better or worse? Yes. Depending upon what takes place. Um, it's, it may be very difficult for a person even to come to church in the first place. I mean, if you have trouble getting out of bed... Um, going to church could be extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, I read uh, something of a rather well-known person who his day was successful if he could get out of the bed, go downstairs and do the laundry. That was a successful day to him. How do you come to church under those conditions? It's extremely difficult. Um, church involvement, if church members can get involved in the lives of the individual, uh, if they can identify and do some of the things that Martha stated so eloquently, uh, that is very positive and that can be helpful. If a person is made to feel alone, different, marked, ununderstood, or she's going for counseling, or he's on drugs, then you're probably better off staying home. In what ways can the church help? Being patient was mentioned. Certainly prayer, loving support, encouragement, involvement in the person's life. And that's a real important one. What kinds of things can we do to help alleviate some of the difficulties? Can we encourage them to take positive steps? Go medication. And once you're on medication, encourage them to continue it because the tendency is to do what when you start feeling better? You stop the medication. And you don't do that. You should not do that. Or you decide on your own it's time to stop. And the doctor doesn't know about that. And then other people see things going back in the direction they were going. And, and I really appreciated the comment Martha made about, 
you know, suggesting ways or asking for ways that I can pray for you in a very definite sense and, and try to care for the individual in all areas of life because the depression will affect all of those areas. What about uh, the biblical knowledge? Why is biblical knowledge here not enough? Well, for one thing, you know the biblical knowledge, but you can't apply it. Um, and there are changes in the depressed person's thinking such that they can't think of it in those ways. And it's difficult to pray if you can do it at all and to read your Bible. And uh, it's probably at best ineffectual to try to do some of those things and probably worst, it just it, it doesn't help matters any. So to appeal to biblical kinds of things is simply not enough. Now I'm going to say, I know we've got to move on, but I'll have a few comments at the end about things that I think are helpful prior to getting into uh, this state or when a person uh, is on medication and can start dealing with the issues. Well, the last one I want to mention Is a minister or elder qualified to help because of his position? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that if he can uh, understand, listen, ask questions, and basically engage in a fact. We're in an ideal position to do that, brothers, because we oftentimes know the family. We oftentimes know the children. We know the relatives. We may have heard other things or seen this person in their interactions in church, and we're kind of in an ideal setting to know a lot about this individual. And, you know, we can find out about the issue and how long have they had this issue and what impact has it had on the family and what are some of these signs and how do you do, what, what is being done about them. And maybe the best thing we can do is give a, pers a person permission to seek help to recognize that this problem goes beyond what I can deal with. I can pray. I can intercede. What kind of help can we in the church provide? What steps do we need to take? Do you need a referral for somebody who can uh, help you deal with this issue? Uh, or I think maybe we should go beyond and maybe take the individual or make an appointment with them. They're probably not going to want to do it on their own. Maybe their husband will if, if that is the particular situation. Martha mentioned not showing shock or alarm. Listen uh, empathetically. Try to understand what's going on. Feel the pain in a very real sense. And don't minimize the problem. Don't just, it's, you'll be okay. It'll work out. Yes, it may, but it may not also. And there are things that one can do to take uh, uh, to minimize the negative effects. And, and lastly, that idea of avoiding judgment. It's not her spiritual condition. Yes, the spiritual condition suffers because of this, but the spiritual condition uh, didn't cause it. And then one last area, uh, helpful biblical advice. I'd like to uh, just cite a few things. One, and here again, I think this is advice, this is stuff that can help us even now in terms of positive mental health reflect on God's love for us. What did God say in Isaiah 43, 
But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I mean, very personal. It's referring to the nation, but it's also referring to us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above that we're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that we may be able to bear it. John 10.10 The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, to destroy. I am come, that they might have life, and that they might have life more abundantly. That's the positive part. That's the looking forward. That's the hope to have life more abundantly. God doesn't want us in these ill situations and with these terrible feelings. But reflect on God's love for us. Another issue, consider his sustaining power, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get through the situation, but I believe you are going to provide for me a way to deal with it. You've got to be able to think like that. You've got, and if, if it's already gone into the irrational thinking, this is not going to be of any help at that point. I like these about controlling the controllable. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bringing our thoughts into captivity. Thinking on things that will uplift not just myself but others and help me to... um, uh, will provide something positive in my own life. And then lastly, Philippians 4, 6 through 9, and you're all familiar with this, I'm sure. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, just, pure, lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Again, those are what I would consider preventative kinds of things for us with positive mental health. Uh, And we need to remind ourselves of those issues and remind one another of those, not at times when it's going to just make it harder. But at times when things are going good, so we have preparation for times when we don't know what the Lord has in store for us. Okay, at this time we've, we've done enough talking here. There are questions, comments to direct toward sisters? I think that's up to the physician to determine whether or not the person is able to deal with that. So oftentimes what's done is opposed to going cold turkey and all of a sudden one day a person stops that you're typically weaned off of that 
to lower and lower dosages and you find out what changes take place in the meantime. But oftentimes it's episodic. It, it will come and go depending upon the stresses of life. And some life events, the birth of a child, the death of a loved one, the stresses of life, they can recur. You know, I am not a physician, so I, I really can't tell you uh, that. I, I think all of that would be taken into account, but they should not exclude life situation factors because the tendency is to exclude. I come from a psychological background, so I'm, in, I'm coming at it from a whole other angle. And so oftentimes the medication can control the depression, but it may not improve any of a person's life situation. Okay, because it's just dealing with the, the body itself and getting the hormones or the chemicals in balance, but it's not dealing with the pressures of a, a young child or a sick child or a, whatever other things may be going on. Uh, Brother Jim. Okay, sorry. We'll repeat them. Yes. Okay, are there certain personality types that are more susceptible to, de to depression? <laughs> Without giving a lot of thought, I would say yes. If you have a tendency uh, to overreact to situations or... Um, to focus on negative thinking or distorted thinking, uh, not getting in, involved in a lot of wholesome physical activities and diet. There are trends that would be easier to predict, predict depression, yes. The question is, are women more susceptible than men to depression? It's a you, woman's question. You have the stats on that, but... Uh, I have the stats on that, too, yeah. I, without looking back and giving you the particular statistics, yes, women have a higher rate of depression than men, briefly. Yeah, it's typically about two to one, if not even more so. But I would suggest that, that some of that may be hormonal uh, in the normal course of just living. And other times it may be the kinds of... Men can avoid many of life's stresses by going to work. I'll go back from camp or from some weekend activity at church and I will rest at work. Meaning my work is a sense a relief, a valve, a release valve or whatever you want to call it from some of the things that may have gone on otherwise. And... Oftentimes, women are in situations where they cannot leave that situation. And I could leave that situation. Fred can go off to work, and Martha's at home. I can go off to work, and Carol's at home. And with a child, you don't have that option.
Okay, the question is, if I remember some of it, uh, how, did, uh, how do you get to the point where you don't feel so guilty and down on yourself and even question your own salvation? I didn't struggle with it that long. It was only a couple of months, so I didn't get to the point where I questioned my salvation, but I did question my relationship with the Lord. Not did he love me or, or was I ever saved, but it was more of um, will, can he forgive me for being such a bad mom? Can he forgive me for all of my negative thoughts? That's what I struggled with. It's part of the self-condemnation, and that's sometimes difficult to differentiate uh, with a person like that when you don't know exactly what's going on. It would need someone to sit down with her and to reassure her that those are two separate things. The comment that Mr. Martha made that her sister Liz told her that she felt she might do something intimidating. This is the, we, we have the Holy Spirit of God, and the devil cannot take control of our lives. And many times, or several times, that people have been, I've been involved with people who have become that desperate. Uh, that very truth was the thing that carried them over until the ship of faith was up here again, you know, on steady waters. We have to claim the promises of God. He's faithful, even if we're unable to. Even still, though, there were many times where uh, I asked her a couple of times in that conversation, say that again, tell me again. I don't believe it right now. Tell me again. So I just had to accept it in faith, and, and even though I didn't really believe it at that moment, I had to somehow get past that and believe that yes I'm not going to hurt my child because I do have the Holy Spirit that will keep me from that and I think that's where the spirit makes an intercession for us with groanings that we can't even understand Uh, yes sister
That's interesting. It's amazing how the body works, is it not? And how it's oftentimes to get to the to, to the diagnosis is extremely difficult, even among professionals. And, and there's continuous work that is being done and testing and so on. So thank you very much for sharing that experience. Related to nutrition, basically, and allergy. Thank you for sharing that. There was a, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. It, well, no, it was not difficult. Um, I had to avoid them for a while because I was afraid that I would get more comments. Um, but I'm past that, thankfully. The comment was made that Satan knows our weak spots and he works on us in those areas. And I think that's why we need to take a proactive, offensive approach to this and think on the right things even before we start. And again, that, that is not to discount when hormones or nutrition issues come about, uh, our bodies can take us for a loop that we don't understand. And I'm not sure how in which category that fits. Heidi? The question is, with postpartum depression, do you just get past it, or what's the course of events? From my own experience, um, I think that the major hump is over, but I still get reoccurring episodes every once in a while, and I don't know what triggers it. But I also know that... Um, when I was sharing this with another sister, her son is six years old, and she is still on medication controlling it. 
So I don't, I've never looked it up. I should probably do that, shouldn't I, Dave? <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know what, what the ranges are, but I know that it can be short. It can, in this other case, it's already been six years. And she said that she, she went off the medication because she was feeling good, and she realized that it's not over for her. So she went back on the medication to keep her balanced. Okay, the question is, if you're suspecting someone is depressed, how can you help them? If they're in denial. Oh, if they're in denial, excuse me. Talk to them. <laughs> yeah, I would say the first thing you want to do is to just befriend them and, and talk to them and develop a relationship and not necessarily go fishing for information because you've got a theory that you think is what the issue is, it may be accurate, it may not be accurate. I would simply try befriending them, find out what they're experiencing, or maybe before even doing that, sharing some of your own experiences, just to let them know that you're willing to open up. And opening up with somebody kind of sets the stage then for them to open up. Uh, I think it really would depend uh, how serious some of those the, the other things would be, but there's a lot of joy I think that can that's lost in life as a consequence of it. As I think I stated earlier, um, there's much more depression around than people are aware.